0: And thank you, David. Uh, good morning. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer. We continue this morning in our series of Psalm 23, very familiar passages of Scripture. Uh, and we've said that it's an extended argument for trusting God with your life. That's what the psalmist wants us to do. It's what God wants us to do. And so, line after line, we're kind of walking through. Uh, it's is just this, this very extended, very detailed argument for why we should trust God. And we come to the line in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Are you lying down in green pastures? I mean, when's the last time you took a nap? Not because you were so exhausted or sick that you had to, but just because there's nothing else to do. Yeah, that got a chuckle, didn't it? I rest my soul, we sang, in you alone. That's what we're talking about this morning, okay? But in order to do that, we want to look at the whole psalm. And so what we're going to be doing instead of Susan or, or someone else reading the scriptures to us is we're going to be reciting them together because we're also memorizing Psalm 23 in the first few months of the year here. So uh, like last week, I'd ask you to stand with me if you would, and we're going to recite this whole psalm and then come back to verse 2 as we meditate. But it should be on the screen behind me. It's also in your worship folder if you'd rather look at that. <clears throat> but let's recite the scripture together. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> Uh, there is an apocryphal story that illustrates some of what we're talking about as we go through this psalm. I shared it with Ashley, and she said she hated it, so I, I, it's scary uh, for me to do this, but it's so silly. I think you might not like it either, but you'll remember it, and it does, it does, um, it does have a point. Uh, there was a monk who was being pursued by a ferocious tiger, and as fast as he could, uh, he was running away until he reached the edge of a cliff. And he noticed there at the edge of a cliff a rope hanging over the cliff. He grabbed it because the tiger was on his heels and shimmied down the side of the cliff. It was a narrow escape. But then he realized as he's hanging there, he looked down and below he saw a quarry of jagged rocks 500 feet below and and the rope not making it all the way to the bottom. And so there he was, you know, stranded there. He thought about climbing back up the rope, but there was the tiger peering over the ledge, sure to claw him to death should he try to go back the way he came. And then looking down, he realized, I'm in a real fix here. And just then, in the moment of his um, panic, two mice began to chew on the rope. What to do? And as the story goes, what to do? The man looked, the monk looked, and there... uh, Hidden in a cleft of the cliff within arm's reach was a strawberry growing out of the face of the cliff. And he reached out and plucked and ate the strawberry and said, Man, that's the best strawberry I've ever tasted. And thus ends the story. <laughs> right? I told you. You'll remember it, I promise. That's the end of the story, but what's the point? What's the lesson? And I think the lesson is this. The lesson is that just like that monk, you could be dangling there, dangerously suspended 500 feet in the air with a past full of regrets and embitterments bearing down on you like a tiger and a future full of unknowns threatening to dash you to pieces, and yet it, it, it be possible for you And this is what the psalm talks about, for it to be possible for you to not be there regretting the past or worrying about the future, but actually enjoying the moment and whatever it brings because it's coming from God's hand. Supernaturally, right? I mean, supernaturally, and I think the story gets at that too, that how supernatural it is to live that way. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living like that? Wouldn't that be something? It would be for me. Uh, I don't need a, a tiger and 500 feet of uh, potential falling to jagged rocks to make me so crippled in the moment that I miss a thousand things every day that I could enjoy. And yet, I really do think it captures what the psalm, what David is saying, what his experience that he's expressing here in the psalm. He says, verse 2, He, the shepherd, the Lord, the Lord his shepherd, who causes him to not want, verse 2, makes he makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside still waters. And so that's what we want to talk about. And we want to do it under three headings, and you'll see them there in your, your outline. We want to talk first about why it is that we have such a hard time lying down. Why don't we lie down? David says he makes me lie down, but we, we don't. Secondly, if it, since it is so hard for us to lie down, then how is it? How is it that God can do this work in our life? How is it that we can come to lie down? And then thirdly, the difference that it would make, because it would make a huge difference, we're talking about a radical transformation here of, of people, a, tra- a transformation of God taking nervous, fearful, anxious people and causing them to lie down so that they can truly begin to seek his kingdom. So you see the transformation from frantic, frantically problem-solving to peacefully lying down, because that's the only way, it's the only posture from which we can be confidently seeking the kingdom. So those that's, those are the three points. That's where we're headed in this sermon. And so let's just start here with the idea of if David sings, he makes me lie down, then why don't we lie down? Why do we have such a hard time just trusting God and taking a break from running our lives? Why does it feel so silly to think about that monk plucking the strawberry there and eating it and enjoying it? Uh, Philip Keller, not Tim. <laughs> we... we <laughs> In our sermon prep, prep meaning uh, we've been calling him Little Keller, which is really insulting. Uh, so we've gone with P.K. instead of T.K. Philip Keller, who wrote a book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. Uh, he's picked up on the significance of the statement, which we might miss. Because, like I said, he, he's a shepherd. So he knows, and these are his words. He says, the strange thing about sheep is that because of their very makeup, it's almost impossible for them to be made to lie down. Sheep are so timid. And so easily panicked that even a stray jackrabbit suddenly bounding from behind a bush can stampede a whole flock. As long as there is even the slightest suspicion of danger, the sheep stand ready to flee for their lives. They have little or no means of self-defense. They are helpless, timid, feeble creatures whose only recourse when they're in danger is to run. So think of those words again, timid. Fearful, easily panicked, helpless, feeble. That pretty much sounds like us. Maybe not you, but me, for sure. I mean, the thing God warns us is the most about in the Bible, you might remember, is not greed or sexual immorality, but fear. And that means that some of us might be greedy, and some of us might be in the grips of of temptation to sexual immorality, but all of us are afraid. In fact, if, you're, if you are greedy, if you're struggling with greed, or if you are struggling with sexual immorality, it's because you're afraid. We are sheep. Remember, that's what the psalm is teaching us. And it's, a, and, it's, and it's a critique. It's an insult. We are sheep. And sheep don't like to lie down unless they know they're safe. So you see the problem. The problem is our fear. But where does the fear come from? That's what we want to try to answer. Well, follow the argument of the text, okay? Let's look at the psalm again, starting in verse 1. So David writes, or he sings, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Now let's work backwards though, because the argument of the text is unfolding here, and so the way, if, if you're not lying down, as he says in verse 2, the way you figure out what he's trying to teach you is by working backwards in the text. So the Lord is my shepherd, okay, here's the argument, the Lord is my, whereas the Lord is my shepherd, and whereas I shall want for nothing, be it resolved that I will lie down. That's what he's saying. So, if I'm too nervous to lie down, then go back. Why? It's because I feel insecure. It's because I feel a sense of want. There's something I feel I need that I don't have. Or, <clears throat> excuse me, something that I might need, that I'm, a, that I'm, I, I'm afraid, or something I feel like I, I have and I need, but that I might lose. And so, where does that sense of want come from then? Okay, we're working, see? He makes me lie down. If I'm not lying down, it's because I feel a sense of want. Where does that feeling of want come from? Well, if you follow the argument... If there's a feeling of insecurity, if there's a feeling that you might not have something you need or, or it might be taken away from you, then that is telling you that you are looking to something other than the good shepherd to take care of you. If I will not lie down, it's, be, it's because I'm wanting. And if I'm wanting, it's because I'm serving some master other than the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, he says. He says. And he makes his sheep lie down in green pasture. So there's an ironic thing here, if you want to put it another way. What we're being taught is is that if if the fear of the Lord, you know, the Bible talks a lot about the fear of the Lord, right? If if you fear the Lord, if you fear God, your fearing of God will make you unafraid of everything else. But if you do not fear him, if you fear something other than him, if you fear something more than him, then the irony is is that it will make you afraid of everything. You'll be nervous like the sheep who won't ever lie down. But the Lord, see, the Lord is our shepherd, and He He makes the sheep lie down and greet pastors. Let me put it another way and turn it on you. If you're constitutionally nervous or afraid, okay, let me stop and say, I know anxiety' is real. There are physical, emotional, psychological, even hormonal reasons for that, but there are also spiritual reasons and I'm a pastor, this is not a counseling session, I'm not a doctor. The spiritual reason, one of the, one component of that anxiety that, that we have to deal with here. The spiritual reason is because, I want to say it like this, you're problem solving your life by looking in or looking around instead of looking up. If there's nervousness like the sheep who won't lie down, it's because, whether you realize it or not, you're still trying to problem solve your life by looking in or looking around instead of looking up. But let me talk about each of those for just a minute, okay? First, um, if you're so afraid you can't lie down and rest consider that it might be because you're still problem-solving your life by looking in. What I mean by that is by relying on your own strength and wealth and resources to make you feel safe. Jen Wilkin has written a new book called None Like Him, and it's marvelous. It's a book about the incommunicable attributes of God and that that there are ways, you know, in other words, Christian theology has always distinguished there are ways that we are like God and there are ways that we're not like God. There are ways that He stands alone. Now, I think I have a PowerPoint illustration, if I could get that up on the screen. Do we have that? There we go. So you see, you see, this is this is this is just an illustration of this. So on the right here, you have a list of what we call God's communicable attributes. They're God what God is that we can also be when as we become more and more like him. So for example, God is merciful. We read in Luke 6, just this past week we read that we should be merciful as he is merciful. He's he's holy. We should be holy like like he is. He's loving, so we should love one another as he's loved us. On the left side of that, of that slide are his incommunicable attributes, the things that are true of him, but that are true only of him. Okay? So God is all-powerful. He's infinite. In these things, he stands alone. But here's, here's what the, the argument Jen Wilkins starts to work out in her, in her book that is really marvelous. She says, Sin is the desire to be like God we know this from Genesis. Uh, it's, it's the desire to be God, but here's what she says. She says, this is so helpful, she said that um, sin is reaching for the attributes that are only true of God so that we can do life without him. In other words, sin is forsaking the column on the right. The irony is, is that the column on the right shows the things that we actually can be like God in, and yet what is most true of us is that all of us have forsaken the pursuit of the things on the right in the pursuit of the column on the left. That we can be holy but we don't really want that. We'll never be self-sufficient. But that's the thing we're pursuing with all of our heart. So she says rather than worship and trust the omniscience of God we desire to be all-knowing ourselves rather than celebrate and revere His omnipotence we seek ultimate power in our spheres of influence. Rather than glory in the omnipresence of God, we try to be everywhere for everybody, rejecting our God-given limits and craving the limitless we foolishly believe that we're capable of wielding and entitled to possess. The Bible calls this boasting. Boasting happens when you believe, for whatever reasons, that the outcomes of your life are in your hands, that you, you, you can boast in your plans. You can boast in your talent. You can boast in your morality. You can boast in your wealth. The Bible says the wealth of the rich is his fortified city. It's a great illustration, right? It makes him feel safe, right? And That's the problem. The sheep won't lie down because they don't feel safe. And so wealth can make you feel safe. A boast is whatever you look to to feel godlike, whatever you trust to make you feel safe apart from God. It could be a business plan. It could be a health regimen. It could be an investment portfolio. But here's the message, none of those things can ultimately make you lie down. They can't make you lie down. They ultimately can't make you feel safe. You planning people like me. Just ask this question, what happens when your plan starts to fall apart? You freak out. You health conscious people. Listen, you're obsessed. You count every calorie, right? The more money you have in the stock market, it doesn't make you feel safe. The more money you have in the stock market, the more you're on your phone constantly checking which direction the arrow is pointing. There's no rest. You're trusting in things that cannot save. That's the message of the psalm. And so we look in. We problem solve by looking in. We look to our own strength. We, we, we develop strategies for how it is that we can become, if we've just stopped for one minute, we would realize what only God is. But here's the other thing Jim Wilkins says. She says the second thing we do is we not only look in, but we look around. In other words, we ask other people to be what only God is. We find people that we think might, might um, the, the left column there might be true of. So we, we, um, we look to the love and the care of a spouse or a friend to feel safe. You've heard the phrase, the honeymoon is over. You know what that means? The phrase refers to the moment in the relationship when you discover that the other person is not godlike. That's what it means. It's the moment when you realize the other person is not godlike. But we tend to turn other people, we tend to turn one another into gods. We do this with spouses. Spouses in unhappy marriages do this with people they're attracted to outside of the marriage. Kids do it to their parents parents to their, do it to their kids, and the Bible calls this the fear of man. And it refers to a relationship that's based on need, because inside you're afraid, and you're looking to the love and the care or the provision of the other person to help you not feel afraid. It never works, because eventually, we all know from experience, the honeymoon is over. And the reason the honeymoon is over moment always comes is because, listen please, only Infinite power, infinite wisdom, infinite love can make you feel safe, and only God is those things. So if you're not lying down, if you don't feel safe, it's because you're still trying to problem solve your life by looking in and look, or looking around instead of looking up. Up, looking up is faith. Boasting in the fear of man are substitutes for faith. They are fears. They are fears other than the fear of the Lord, which is the only thing that can make you not afraid. And so we see sheep don't lie down because they're too constitutionally nervous to relax. But the text says the Lord our shepherd makes us lie down in green pastures. And so the second point we want to talk about then is how. How does the Lord come and accomplish that among us? Well David who authored the psalm uh, was hardly ever safe. When Saul wasn't trying to kill him, the Philistines were. When the Philistines weren't trying to kill him, his own children were. And yet He penned these words, verses 1 and 2, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Listen to Psalm 4, 8. I love this verse. Psalm 4, 8, David again speaking says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So surrounded by enemies, on the run from his own people, hiding out in caves in the desert, David knew that he was safe in God's hands. Have you you ever tried to teach a puppy to sit and then lie down? What's that like? Do you just say lie down and they magically figure it out? What do you have to do? You have to put your hands on them, and you have to force them to the ground, pin them down, and then say the words lie down, and then give them a treat really quick so they associate the word lie down with the treat they're going to get. That is surely, listen, that is surely part of what the text means when David says, God makes me lie down. Some of you are wondering why he's working in your life the way he is. You're the puppy. In other words, David's saying, I didn't just suddenly become like this. God did something, he says. He arrested me. He powerfully put his hands on me and he forced me to lie down. In other words, what the text is teaching here is that God, in order to do this in our life, God must override our natural anxiety and fear and powerfully by his spirit bring us to a place of contentment and rest where our hearts are fortified no matter what is going on on the outside. On the inside there's peace and joy and quiet. So we're talking about God's power to change us. That he has to make you lie down. He has to do something where your, your inner frame is supernaturally changed. That's the only way. And that's what David means when he says, verse 2, he makes me lie down, and then comes the explanatory parallel statement. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Do you see that there? And in the Bible, drinking from living waters is a description of faith over and over again. So the problem, the Bible tells us, is that we are thirsty, but we don't know where to go to satisfy our thirst. But God knows where the water we need is to be found. And what David is saying is, and he leads us. He leads us to the waters that we need. That is, he, he thwarts all of our attempts to drink from polluted potholes riddled with parasites that may satisfy for the moment, but will eat away at our insides. And he, he instead, he uses our thirst to bring him to himself, Who is, in fact, the living water that if we drink from Him, we will never be thirsty again? One of my favorite scenes in the Narnia books is when Jill, uh, one of the one of the teenagers, one of the children, um, is thirsty and she's looking everywhere for water, and she finally finds a stream. But as she moved to drink, she noticed Aslan, the lion, standing there by the stream. He invited her to drink, but she, of course, was afraid because who wouldn't be afraid of a lion? And so she asked if he wouldn't mind leaving while she drank. Of course, the lion refused, but she was dying of thirst by now. And so she asked, do you eat girls? The lion responded, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. And Jill, too afraid, went to say goodbye to go looking for another stream. And as she turned her back, came Aslan's words, Child, there is no other stream. You see, here's the problem. Sheep, don't, sheep only lie down when they know they're safe. And it's the shepherd's presence and care that makes them feel safe. David sings, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. You alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. Only infinite power, infinite wisdom, and infinite love can make you feel safe, but only God is those things. There's no other stream. But the, but the story captures something that's true of our experience there, because isn't, didn't C.S. Lewis say that God's not safe? No, he's not safe. I mean, so don't get the wrong idea. I want to be very careful here. Don't let sentimentalism creep into your understanding of Psalm 23 here. You're not safe in God's hands because he's safe. You're safe with him because he's good. So let me try to explain. I mean, God is not safe. Listen. (coughs) Excuse me. Listen to to a couple of other places in the Psalms. Psalm 5, for example, uh, verses 4 and 5. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. This is David. In the same cluster of psalms that he said some of the other things we've seen, Psalm 7, 11 and 12, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He's angry every day. And if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent his bow and, re- and readied it. So those are those are David's words too. I mean, does that sound safe? Infinite justice and wrath coming your way because of your sin, that's absolutely terrifying. There's Nothing's safe about that. And here's where the Bible is so helpful. It's good psychology, you see. It, it, it says that all of your anxiety and your nervousness about things that are going on in your life, there's, there's a layer underneath that that's really the place where, where all of those nerves come from. And it comes from knowing this. All of your anxiety about life stems from something even, even further below the surface, from this. From knowing, number one, that you're a sinner, that you're a rebel and a robber of God's glory. That, second, in response to your sin, that he is a righteous judge. And third, that you stand condemned before him. You're on his most wanted list. He's coming after you. That's the real fear. That's the real fear. We read this past week in community Bible reading the story of Jesus and his disciples in the storm. And the boat is taking on water and they're about to sink. And they cry out, at least in Mark's telling. Do you remember they cry out? Lord, in the middle of this storm, Lord, do you not care? See, that's the real storm. The wind and the waves, no big deal. The real storm in stormy times is doubting God's heart for you. It's knowing that God is a righteous judge and feeling condemned. Zephaniah 3 that we read a minute ago says there are judgments against you. And your heart feels this. Your heart knows it and it feels condemned. And it's because of that feeling of condemnation that you look out at all the things going on in your life and you think, oh, It's going to catch up with me eventually. Oh, this must be finally when he's going to come and get me. And, you know, you feel like the universe is one big, gigantic, cosmic game of whack-a-mole. You stick your head out of the thing. God's there with the mallet, and he's just waiting to pound you on the head. And so you just live afraid. Because you're a lawbreaker, you're bad. You're a lawbreaker, you're bad. And you know you deserve to be punished, and so your heart's constantly condemning you. Now, I know a thing or two about this, and I can tell you it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And it's where all the nervousness that keeps you from peacefully lying down comes from. So what happens in your life is a little rabbit leaps out of the bushes, but you think it's the wolf come to devour you, and you take off, scared to death. So how do you get past it? You get past it with with the doctrine of the psalm. I mean, the the solution to most of our problems is doctrine. and You get past it with the doctrine of the psalm, and the doctrine of the psalm is just this, that God is not safe, but that you're safe with him because he's good. God is not safe, but you are safe with him because he's good. God, God is good. And David sang about God's righteous justice and his anger at sin, and then in the next stanza, he talked about God being his shield, and his refuge. It's amazing. God is, God is like that. He's like those verses. Angry every day, a righteous judge who bends his bow to slay the wicked God is like that, but the gospel is that if your faith is in Jesus Christ, he's not like that towards you. He's still like that towards his enemies. And so Martin Luther liked to say that Christianity is a matter of personal pronouns. The personal pronouns is the most important word in the whole phrase. Psalm 23 doesn't say that God is a good shepherd, and so you have these pictures, the flannel pictures of Jesus, the gentle shepherd carrying, you know. It doesn't say God is a shepherd. What does it say? The Lord is my shepherd. And the my makes all the difference. Luther meant that God's love and goodness are always personal and particular. And so the key to feeling safe with God, with the God of the Bible, who is not safe, is to know his love particularly, to distinguish between who God is in himself and who he is towards me. He is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day, but he is none of that towards me God, God is love, doesn't carry the same power as God loves me. He's my shepherd, and that is the gospel. The, God, the gospel is that God loves particularly, that he loves those who belong to him. He loves his sheep. To everyone else, else he's not safe, but with his sheep, listen, with his sheep, Isaiah forty eleven, he tends his flock like a shepherd. And gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart and gently leads them. See, God may terrify you the way Aslan terrified Jill at first. Meaning her impulse was to run away and try to find water somewhere else, somewhere safe. She was afraid of him because she did not know his goodness. But once she came to know his goodness, she realized that to run away would have been the most dangerous thing of all. The gospel, here's 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 the line, the gospel doesn't make God safe. It makes God good. The commentators say there are obvious parallels between Psalm 23 and the story of Jesus' feeding of the 5,000, which we also read this, this week in Luke's gospel. But in Mark's gospel, particularly Psalm 23 is the background music. Uh, you should look later. It really is striking there. Uh, before, the, before the miracle even happens, the people gathered there uh, are described by Mark uh, from Jesus' viewpoint as sheep without a shepherd. And so as the story goes on, Jesus commands them to sit down, or to, it really, the, the word there is the same word here in Psalm 23, he commands them to lie down in green grass. And then he, you know, moves by his power to take care of his needs. He took bread, and, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, and then we're told all ate, and we're satisfied there. And it's a picture in the Gospels of the sheep lying down in green pastures because their every need has been met by the good shepherd. They ate and were satisfied, and there was plenty left over. Twelve baskets. Think about that. Twelve baskets. One for each of the disciples, but none for Jesus himself. Why? He doesn't have a need for that. He is inexhaustible goodness and power and love. He is the fountain of all of those things. And this is why, excuse me, this is the way God is towards us in Christ and everything. That's what that story teaches. It's the way he is towards us in Christ and everything. He can take a little and miraculously cause it to abound so that you will always have all you need and plenty left over. Do you believe that? Do you believe he can take whatever little there is in your life and make it plenty, cause it to abound, so that you will always have everything you need and not only that, you'll have plenty left over too? Do you believe that? He can feed you. And he can lead you to water even in the wilderness until you're wanting no more and you lie down contented and careless in his care. He is the good shepherd. And here's how you can know. If you're still like me, I believe, help my unbelief. I think I believe that, but it's not really taken root in my heart yet. Well, here's the thing you need to realize. Here's the reason you can be sure that even though he's not safe, you are safe with him. The scholars also point out that the scene where Jesus feeds the 5,000 in the Gospels is connected to another meal. The Last Supper. And at that meal, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples. The same verb order there in the other scene. But when he gave it to his disciples, he said, this is my body broken for you. Jesus Christ is the bread of heaven, taken from his heavenly home to come into the world in the incarnation. Blessed by his Father at his baptism. Broken in his death upon the cross for our sins, and given to his people in his resurrection ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, are are you struggling to lie down careless in his care? Are you anxious? Then you need to see that the good shepherd has laid down his life for his sheep. He has laid down his life for you because he loved you. The wrath and the judgment of God headed your way because of because of sin that part's true but what is also true is that jesus christ the good shepherd became a lamb a sacrificial lamb to die in your place bearing your sins to satisfy the wrath and justice of god so that now even though god is not safe you're safe with him because there is nothing to condemn you and that's what the prophet means when he says he can quiet you with his love that he can make you lie down so you ready Listen, take a deep breath. Can you do that? Relax. Kick off your shoes. You're safe. If your faith is in Jesus, all those things are true. All of your needs have been taken care of. Your sin has been taken away. Your sins have been cast into the depths of the sea, the prophet Micah says. There will always be food to eat and water to drink and lots left over, compliments of your good shepherd. Look at the birds. They don't sow or reap or store up, and they they don't have rainy day funds. Yet God feeds them. He makes sure they have what they need. They never go without, and you are so much more valuable to him than birds. If he feeds them, he'll feed you. Look at the flowers of the field. They don't toil or spin. That is, they're not stressed out. They're not worried about where something's coming from that they might need. And look how beautifully God clothes them, what lavish generosity he showed to them you are far more valuable to him than flowers and if he clothes the flowers of the field like that will he not also clothe you so you know you know you know this passage right so he says don't be anxious don't be afraid but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and here's our last point really quickly peacefully lying down is not the ultimate goal the goal of christianity is not serenity the goal of christianity is to glorify god and enjoy him forever, to live, in other words, in such a way that he gets the credit for your life, that people look at you and are not impressed with you, but they're impressed with him. So it's a life of obedience and kingdom seeking. However, what we're told there in all of those places in the Gospels where Jesus talks about the birds and the lilies and anxiety and all of that is that before you can seek his kingdom, you have to stop being anxious. That's the way he put it. Don't be anxious, but, in other words, instead of, in the place of that anxiety, seek the kingdom. So if you're anxious... Then all of your time and energy and focus, all of your activity will be spent on problem solving for whatever you're anxious about. But to seek the kingdom means that you spend all of your time and energy and focus and all of your activity working for God and not trying to meet your own needs. So People ask me all the time, what does it mean to seek the kingdom? Does it mean you have to quit your job and become a pastor? Please, no. There's enough of us already. Actually, there's not enough of us already. We need some more. But, but no, no, it may be, maybe I guess, but probably not. It means instead that whatever you're doing, you're doing it for him and not for yourself. You're motivated by his glory and not your need. You're driven by faith and fullness and not anxiety and a sense of wanting. So you have to stop working for yourself before you can begin to work for God. In other words, you can't seek God's kingdom until you first lie down, careless in his care. Now imagine, imagine work. Imagine work but not working to win. Not working to succeed, not working for the promotion or financial gain. Imagine going to work with the confidence that all of your needs have already been met so no anxiety about performance reviews. A whole new set of motivations begins to open up to you then. It would become working to serve and love not for gain, to produce goods and services that benefit society, to reject competition and serve the people you work with. That's seeking first the kingdom. Imagine friendship but with no anxiety. Can you imagine friendship with no anxiety? And That'd be awesome no fear of rejection, no neediness. You're in the relationship completely for the other person and not for yourself, so there's low expectations. You're not asking the other person to be what only God is. So there's lots of forgiveness. You're constantly putting the other person's needs ahead of your own and trying to serve them, not keeping score to see who's winning. Oh, that is so redemptive. And it's what it means to seek the kingdom. Now i not going to go on, but I won't. I'm trying to make this one point here at the end. There's a lot at stake We make a big mess of things when we move out into life, into work and marriage and parenting, friendship, church, frantically problem-solving by looking in and boasting or looking to one another in the fear of man instead of looking up in faith to the good shepherd. And I've always been struck by the verse in Hebrews chapter 4 that says, Strive to enter God's rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. What that means is, is that striving with no rest is disobedience. It's what the Hebrews writer says. Striving to rest... That's obedience. So how do you work for God? I mean, how how is it that you get busy? What's what's the Christian's work to do? Your working for God starts when you know that the work has already been done for you and you lie down in green pastures that he has provided for you. And then from that place of peace and safety and security and rest, you confidently begin to go about his work. The hymn writer said it perfectly. He, he, He just captured this in the words... Uh, that say of God thy love so pure so changeless we sang it a minute ago satisfies our heart's deepest longings meets supplies it's every need surrounding we, me with blessing thine O Lord is love indeed he is the one that we need and he is all that we need and when we come to know that we will lie down and when we lie down that's when we'll really begin to get to work for his glory so let's pray that he continues to work and do this among us can we let's pray so, Father, we are not a people that are prone to lying down. We are like sheep, each gone to its own way. Sheep running away from you and in disobedience and fear. We're running away from the only one who can truly take care of us. Isn't there irony? There's such irony in the way we live our lives that we are so desperately looking for happiness apart from you when the happiness we need can only be found in you. Father, would you subdue our rebellious hearts? We don't. We, we are frantic and frenetic and upset all the time and full of anxiety and worry about how our life's going to turn out. And you would come to us and put your hands on us and gently cause us to lie down under your care. How badly we need for you to do that work in us. And so even as we sing here at the end of our songs, would you continue to subdue our rebellious hearts? Would you quiet them with your love? Would you give us eyes to see the great love of the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep? That's what we need. And so do, Father, just that now, we pray, so that we might be people that truly seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, that live lives of obedience, that honor and glorify you, we pray. All of these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the benediction here at the end of the service is ascending. We are being sent out by God now, just as Jesus said, go into all the world to his disciples. And so as he's sending you, there's work that he means for you to do. We are to be seeking first his kingdom. Uh, But the question is, is are you going to go and try to do that in your own strength and then collapse in the chair at the end of the day exhausted? Or are you going to take a moment, breathe deep, rest, quiet yourself, uh, rest in his love, and then from that place of resting, the lying down in green pastures, uh, get to work to serve him. The second is what he desires, and that's the reason for this benediction. Here are the words that can come over your soul, quiet your heart, cause you to lie down, knowing that every need as you go is taken care of. So receive these words of the benediction, rest your soul in them, and then go and work for him in his glory. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his what? on his peace.